1: Just a little extra thing for you is that we had to record this podcast remotely because they're drilling in the lifts at work. And also, there's other things going on, you know. But um, basically, we made errors, technically, which meant that um, you can't really hear Alex very well. So just listen a bit harder for that. Sorry about that. I know you'll be annoyed. I'm very sorry. Didn't mean that to happen. It's largely uh, Seb's fault. We'll say that. Seb's fault. Um, Yeah, so sorry you can't hear Alex. Seb's fault. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I am JJ Bull. Joe Devine isn't here. It's almost Christmas time. And Seb Stafford Blower is really happy. How are you, Seb?
2: I am fine, but I need to feel a little bit more like Joe Devine is here. So... I don't feel like you did your, your very best, Joe Devine. There. Oh, I'm not Can doing a Joe have Devine another today. That, please? I'm just going to try Can and. You make a funny noise or. Uh, how about if when I'm talking, you just shout across me and cut me off?
1: Hi, JJ, I'm really well. Can you even hear how annoyed Seb is through the internet? You can't even see him before we went on to this. This is going to be the best podcast you've ever heard. And also joining us today is Alex Stewart, but you seem to be happier.
3: I'm actually all right today, yeah, that's unusually usually by my standards, I'm, I'm, I'm ordinarily in the grip of an existential crisis, but today I've had plenty of coffee
1: and I feel okay. That's good, that's how you end existential crisis, crises, yeah. crises. caffeine. For those um, enjoying this podcast through the visual medium of sight, uh, what is this uh, shirt you're wearing? looks nice. Oh, this is a
3: a recently reissued replica of the 87 to 89 Southampton home kit that was done by Hummel.
1: Yes, of course it is. And so today, speaking of Hummel, we're going to be talking about all sorts of uh, football games that happened because some of them did. A lot of them got cancelled because of that old uh, coronavirus thing going around. You heard of this? You seen this? So we're going to talk about Newcastle and did, Manchester City. Did
2: you City? just make coronavirus sexy there? That uh, was, yes. That was kind of weird. Yeah,
1: I certainly did. Uh, Newcastle and Man City, that's, we're going to talk about that. I bet we're going to talk about Spurs because you like Spurs. That might make you happy, Seb. A bit of Spurs. Would that make you feel Spurs. good? Oh, do you know what else makes me happy, Seb? The Athletic. Is it The Athletic? It yeah, is. Yeah, nice. And for the cool, cool uh, sum of however much it costs per month at the moment you can go to The Athletic and read articles on teams like Spurs, that's Sedlix, and also other teams. Uh, Derek Corrigan writes lots of things that I like about Spanish football, and that's how I keep up to date with that. And if you go to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, then you get a 30-day free trial. Is there a better way to try it out than that, Alex? Uh, There's no better way to try something out than it being free. That's correct. Or they could pay you to read it. That would be the better way. Or
2: someone could give it to you for Christmas hey, that would be a good way of, uh, of doing it. If someone was just to gift it to you for Christmas, that would be amazing. That would be the very, very best way to experience the athletic, I think.
3: unwrap, though, because on Christmas Day, you, you want something tangible to...
2: I mean, figuratively, I'd unwrap my excitement. I don't... You,
3: know. okay, you could. I, I would pay to
1: see that.
2: Knowledge. You'd, you'd unwrap knowledge, Alex. That's what Joe would say in this situation. Sure. Yeah, good.
1: Seth just wants Joe. That's what he wants
2: i'm just i'm going to be joe divine during this podcast i'm going to play that character all the way through
1: well remember to subscribe to the athletic football football one time christmas all right let's go with the podcast and we shall leave you in the uh, what does he say the warm arms and the (laughs) the cool hand of frosty the snowman Newcastle nil for Manchester City. Oh, boy! Are Newcastle in trouble? You've written here wonderfully bad defending for the first goal, which is a nice phrase because wonderfully bad just makes it shouldn't make sense, but it does. It's perfect. What happened?
3: Uh, what happened was that a ball was played through to Cancelo, who stretched, and it actually reminded me massively of a Kai Havertz assist for Bayer laser, Leverkusen. Laser.
2: Laser Cousin. Fire laser
3: cues and like Laser quest, but in yeah. North Germany. Um, and he sort of stretched and volleyed it back. And Kieran Clark thought that Debravka was going to take it. Dubravka thought, I think correctly, that Kieran Clark should have taken responsibility. Neither of them did. And it, it wasn't like it was massively fizzed across or anything. Um, it was just a decent ball into a decent area. And. Yeah, and then someone, I can't remember who, but one of Man City's less tall people jumped in and scored. And (laughs) you just kind of look at it and think, you know, Eddie Howe is is facing a very difficult task there, even if they've got a shed load of money to spend. If you're not going to be able to attract the right quality of players who are thinking, hmm, do we really want to go to a relegation scrap in the northeast? Uh, for a club where there are, shall we say, PR issues surrounding uh, some of the things going on there. Um, And then you look at that and Howe's not like a great defensive coach. That's not what he's particularly good at sorting out. So it just seems like it was uh, symptomatic of a lot of the issues. Mm. I mean, City were great, but yeah, Newcastle cannot defend.
1: Is, Is Howe for now,
2: Seb? how is for now also for now might be dan ashworth so uh, according to reports by david ornstein uh, brighton have given permission for newcastle to discuss the sporting director role with dan ashworth which feels strange on a number of levels firstly because ashworth has a great job at brighton and is doing a great job at brighton uh, but also because the transfer window opens in 11 days time 12 days time um and that's not an ideal moment to appoint a sporting director during a season when you might get relegated because you'd expect all of your strategy to be um, to be bound up in whoever that person is because that would quite literally be their job should they arrive so uh, yeah um, pretty worrying on the pitch uh, how is for now but um, Newcastle in the Premier League might be for later I don't know uh, it doesn't look great
1: I mean,
3: Ashworth's a very smart appointment,
2: should that happen.
1: Who is Dan Ashworth for people who might not be aware of him?
2: So, well, Dan Ashworth was the architect of England DNA, um, which um, was much maligned, but actually very, very successful. Like the mad scientist in Jurassic Park. A little bit, but without getting eaten at the end. Oh, no, he doesn't get eaten, does he? I'm thinking, of what's the name of the guy that steals the test tube, runs away in the car, and then gets um, killed by that inky...
1: That's Newman that from Seinfeld. Him. Yeah. yeah.
2: Okay. He, yeah, That I was thinking of him. And Dan Ashworth is not like that guy at all. Um,
1: he is, uh, <laughs> I've forgotten what the question was. <laughs> Did Dan Ashworth get eaten by a. a what's the name of the dinosaur with the big uh the velociraptor
2: no 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 it's categorically not a velociraptor yeah no
1: it and also <laughs> that's actually this is another good fact about Jurassic park for you the velociraptor was meant to be a uh, or deinonychus but because because raptors are actually very small they're really small and Deinonychus is or whatever they're called uh were much taller but raptors had the claw on their foot which made them scarier
3: there's a there's a challenge in civ 6 where you if you build an archaeological museum in the same city as an amber mine, <laughs> it says, What could possibly go wrong? Oh. oh, and there has to be a zoo as well. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I did that one a while ago.
1: So Dan Ashworth, I feel like at this
2: point, Joe would, would somehow kind of talk about Rocket League. I don't know enough about Rocket League to kind of draw that segue, but that's what you do. It's like you know, in Rocket League, when you're you know you're doing a 360 degree flip off the corner of the cage, and you're you know you're driving into your football and scoring a goal, and it's a bit like that. So Dan Ashworth, um, I find it really odd because like I, I would imagine that for a sporting director, the most important thing at a club is trust. Um, followed closely behind by uh, harmony and cohesion with a um, head coach seems to have all of those things. Everyone's going, everything's going very, very well at Brighton, and um, we have no indication of whether he'd accept Newcastle's offer. But it seems odd to entertain it beyond the kind of the financial value of it, just because. Um, It's still lacking in all the infrastructure you need to maximise your own performance as a sporting director. Newcastle's training facilities are dreadful. Um, They are a couple of years at least away from being Premier League standard. Um, Their recruiting pull is, uh, I don't think it, um, at this point, is much stronger than Brighton's because of the threat of relegation. Um, You know, financial uh, muscle aside.
3: Brighton have got Graham Potter. Which is a massive draw because Brighton's Brighton's focus very correctly and intelligently is on younger players that they can develop, um, and they have a real nose for sniffing out you know good prospects, particularly I think in midfield. And so if you're if you're a young player in Europe looking at that development model and the opportunity to work with Potter and looking at some of the other transfers they've made, you're going to feel that's a really good fit. That's not the Ashworth can't pick up his strategy that works fantastically at Brighton, like you say, in concert with a good relationship with Tony Bloom and a good relationship with Graham Potter yeah. transport that same approach to Newcastle because Newcastle have a different set of problems and a different set of priorities
2: I also feel like I'm always very, very suspicious when a club appoints a manager uh, without having a sporting director in situ and then brings in a sporting director to work with someone that they haven't appointed. It always feels like that makes the relationship a lot more short-term. Like a, the job of a sporting director is to not necessarily appoint, but to recommend and promote a manager for a job. Um, and that wouldn't be the case. And I have no idea about the synergies between Eddie Howe and Dan Ashworth. I don't know that they know each other at all well, or you know, have ever worked together before, but. Um, Strange, strange one. It just should have been the other way round. It feels very, very late in the day to be making this, and it seems symptomatic of everything that's happened post takeover.
1: Well, the things that you see off the pitch in Newcastle seem to replicated on it at the moment. It's a bit of disarray. They don't really look like they are doing very well. Particularly, should they have had a penalty when Ederson flew out and took out Ryan Fraser? Yeah, pretty obviously. I mean, if- I don't think they should. Why not? Because he wasn't getting he wasn't getting near the ball. The play had gone; it would continued elsewhere. Yeah, but I think you can. I think
3: if if he if if he doesn't get taken out, he's able to put pressure on a defender who is fr- not even in control of the ball themselves. Mm. He's very close to being able to make that pressure successfully, and he's impeded by it's it's. It's no different from from two players chasing the ball and a third player like pulling on the shirt of them. You would give a free kick for that, wouldn't you? So yes. what's the difference? Just because it's in the penalty area, it's well. I wonder, and it's not. He's not even slightly impeded. He is completely taken off his feet.
1: Yes, but do you think the referee's thinking that's not really going to make a difference, is it? I can completely understand
2: why he hasn't given it. I think it is a penalty. But like, it's just enough of a loophole for a referee not to bother with it. Just because it's, I I suppose it's a bit of a weird one because like... Just not to bother with it. (laughs) It's like, oh, it's Well, because I, yeah, because, yeah, a little bit, Christmas, um, charitable, but also JJ's got a point. Like, it has no impact on what happens next at all. And I, I, I also entirely understand the argument for a penalty and I wouldn't have been that worked up either way. A lot of people seemingly disagree about that. But it's like, it doesn't change anything, um, and I feel it, it's a little
3: bit like think of it like this. It's argument, like oh well, this thing that couldn't have been allowed to happen because of what happened first might not have been relevant.
2: No, but uh, uh, but because that's that's the basis for so many refereeing decisions, like what's pertinent in um, in a phase of play. Like this reminded me of when um, a Ford gets to uh, gets the ball a second ahead of a defender, boots off for a goal kick. But then um gets scythed down once the ball's in row F and then a penalty is given. It's just like that's it's not a penalty because it yeah. I think I'm with JJ. Sorry, Alex, I, I can feel your disappointment. It's just like it it's um it's not worth the outrage that 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 sort of
3: that social media decided. I agree. I, I, I mean I kind of I don't know, I do wonder this and obviously this is a weekend for weird refereeing decisions. Um Oh but. for sure. Yeah like I do I do kind of I get why people get annoyed I do but I also feel like if it's done it's done why spend the next five hours working yourself into a lather over it just go and have a walk eat a banana play Civilization 6
1: talk about it on a podcast okay uh, other things on this note because there's only like three games we we talk about we should focus more on Slow everything down yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Joe Linton. He's garbage, isn't he? But you've written that he's not as bad as he seems to be. Well, yeah, so
3: um and thank you for paraphrasing what I actually wrote. Um You wrote that he, he was shit. No, I said not shit. <laughs> um no look, he, the 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 problem with Joe Linton is that um when he was bought from Hoffenheim, his role at Hoffenheim was very much as a kind of second striker. He was a link player. He was somebody who was looking to play in somebody ahead of him or spread to play wide to wing backs. He would pick up the ball, turn and carry it slightly. He was not ever a centre forward. And yet he was bought in and then used by Steve Bruce largely as a centre forward. So obviously he's not going to appear to be the player that he was. You know, that, that he was at Hoffenheim, and the reason that he was bought from Hoffenheim was his good performances there because he was being used in the wrong role. Here, he was more of a, I don't want to call him a 10, because he's not like a 10, but he's a, a sort of a shadow striker.
1: He's a 4 out of 10.
3: <laughs> Harsh, but fair. Um, but there were a few moments where, because if, if you've got Callum Wilson playing ahead of you, and Callum Wilson's quick and he's good at bursting past the shoulder of the last defender. You want somebody who can pick the ball up, drive forwards like San Maxima can also do off the left-hand side, create that issue where defenders are thinking, do I step up to this player to close them down, or do I drop back and back and back with the forward who's going to try and push beyond that? Um, and Gillington had a few moments where he was able to do that. Obviously, those moments were limited because he's playing against a really, really good midfield um and they have very little time on the ball generally and you know, City have good enough defenders that they can make those judgments between them and one steps up and one falls back. But it, it just felt like that was a a means of progression that Newcastle had by using Jillington correctly in a way that we didn't see under Steve Bruce. But yes, he's he's still not amazing.
1: Are you sitting on a staircase? Yes I am. Tottenham two to Liverpool I enjoyed this game. This was like basketball. Fun, Yeah, it happened on Sunday. Um, Liverpool were missing some key players because they had fallen foul to the vile ways of the coronavirus and probably some other reasons as well. Um, So written as it's very much a second string. It's quite a good second string they put out there.
2: Yeah, pretty useful second string. So, kind of a little bit weak in the middle. Uh, No Virgil van Dijk at the back, but a really strong forward line, which caused Tottenham all sorts of problems. Apart from Mohamed Salah, who was um, really well contained by Ryan Sessegnon. Played very, very well. Feels like um, uh, this was sort of the moment when Sessegnon's Tottenham career began. Um, He was excellent.
1: That's Uh, interesting with that, because he, to me, he's not a wing-back or a left-back or anything like that. He is... So, when he was playing well at Fulham... He was a left-sided yeah. forward in a three, and what he would mm-hmm. do is he's not—he's not particularly rapid or anything like that. He just would arrive at the right place at the right time and finish off moves like a tapping merchant. He's really good at it. He's,
2: uh, yeah, he—he he was sort of—I uh, characterised him. A lot of people sort of um, mischaracterized him as a sort of a new Gareth Bale, which is about as far from what he is as possible. Because Sesnion is a—he's a smart player. You can actually—if you watch him—and if you sit close enough to the touchline particularly when when he was a Fulham at Craven Cottage and when he was so close, you can kind of see him thinking his way through games and his sort of positioning and, um, you know, the passes he gives. Like, he, he also, like, he was, um, I think Jukanovic would use him sometimes from the right of a front three um, as well. Like, he would rotate him in games and he just, um, he knew where to be at exactly the right
3: moment. I think we did a video on him, like, way, way back and it was... It was really interesting to see how many of his goals started with runs from sort of maybe the edge of the penalty area on the left-hand side, but but cut very diagonally in, and he would finish them around the six-yard box. And it wasn't because of pace, and it wasn't because of the directness of his running necessarily. It, like you said, it was it was timing that brought him into very close-in positions at exactly the right moment, which does strike me as as purely a product of intelligence.
2: It's funny also because I I watched him play quite a lot in the England age group teams as he came up and he was capable there of being really destructive and of being that kind of running past player um, type of attacker. Uh, good finisher too. But then in neither case you know it was he ever really associated with quality defending um and i was having a conversation with uh, kevin hatchett uh, who um is a commentator who does a lot of commentary um particularly in german football english language commentary for german football works for talk sport good man kev um he was talking about uh how much cessignan improved defensively while he was at hoffenheim um because there's quite a great emphasis on that side of his game um and that certainly showed because i, I thought that um I think Salah's played a lot of football lately, um, and he looks a little bit jaded. But he certainly didn't really do anything against Spurs, which is, I think, the first time I've said that in quite a long time. <laughs> so credit to Ryan Sessignon. on. But it was, um, it was fun. Oh, JJ, I'm going to interrupt this to bring you some red hot Scottish football news. Oh Sean gosh. Maloney is the new manager of Hibs.
1: That's good. That's uh, exciting. What uh, does I, that mean? Well, they got rid of. What you. are
2: Hibs? <laughs> what is what is a Hibs?
1: well I mean it should go basically it should go Rangers Celtic and then really it should be one of Aberdeen or Hearts probably it should be third Aberdeen are way off it Hearts are much better at the moment under Robbie Nielsen Hibbs just got rid of Jack Ross of the brutal sacking like a week before the cup final
2: is that uh, former Sunderland uh, uh, Jack Ross yeah
1: that guy yeah. I, I think he's really good I really rate him as a manager and he yeah. was doing well with him but they just you know they it's not much you can really do, like sure enough, you expect them to finish third, whatever, but you can only finish third at the end of the season, you can't finish third now. And they lost 2 1 to Celtic on the weekend, by the way, they won the league cup. You couldn't have guessed that would happen. Um, and so Sean Maloney, who's been working under Roberto Martinez at various clubs, I think, especially Belgium, he
2: was, um, yeah, he was an assistant coach with the Belgian national team.
1: Yeah, was Sean Maloney a sort of
3: like wide inside forward for Celtic? Yes. Yeah,
2: and for Wigan, do you remember the um, the goal he scored against uh, Wigan? Beat Man United one 0 in a um, during the I think the season when they ended up getting relegated. Maybe the season before. And Sean Maloney scored a fantastic goal, cutting in from from the left, bending in at the far post. Good player, Sean Maloney. No, I don't remember that.
1: Well, no, he was He's good only
3: thirty eight, which is I remember Aberdeen beating your... Real Madrid two one.
1: Oh, in the nineteen eighty three Cup Winners' Cup final against Real Madrid. Yeah, yeah.
3: Seventeenth of May,
1: I believe. I remember that. Yeah. Can, Sean I, Maloney. can
3: I can I Sean
2: Maloney, but also like um, relating to Sean Maloney um, Spurs. So yes, um, one of the topics that came out of that game was uh, Deli Ali's <laughs> performance, um, which is really really interesting because I think um, both under uh, Jose Mourinho and briefly under Nuno Espirito Santo, um, Deli Ali has been sort of converted into this um, probably more advanced of, of a of a midfield three, and he's been kind of tried as a bit of a shuttler, which is strange because it's it's not. The role he played for Mauricio Pochettino was typically tied to wherever Harry Kane was on the pitch. The closer those two players were together um, to each other, even the better they tended to perform. And on Sunday, he played on the right of the front three. And it was his best performance in a really, really long time. I don't think it's going to be enough to uh, change his career's trajectory at Spurs. I still expect that he'll leave in January. It might change the type of club that, that uh, are interested in him. Um, But it's kind of nice, you know, when like a player's obviously been through a a pretty rough time form wise and you see him have a pretty decent game, a nice seven, seven and a half out of 10 game, get a nice round of applause when he comes off. It was just kind of a feel good moment. I felt like if that's the last time um, Dele Alli is seen playing for Tottenham, that's a nice way to end rather than kind of as the guy that um, was hacking about against Moura in the UEFA conference nonsense.
1: He missed Uh, two massive chances, didn't he?
2: Well, he missed. Well, no, I, I felt like um, the one he cut back for Harry Kane. I felt like that was more of a Kane miss. I thought contact was a little bit.
1: I thought the pass was nowhere near what it needed to be. I think it needed to be hit along the ground. and I, wait, yeah, pace. I agree. Yeah, it
2: was a yeah, wrong no, choice pass disagree. or bad
1: execution. I would have said.
2: I, th- I think it wasn't the greatest pass. I still think Kane should score the second one. Um, I mean, sorry, the one in the first half um, probably should score. I think it's more just a really, really good bit of goalkeeping.
1: I, again, um, I he think, should put it
2: away clearly. Yeah. But I mean. Um, I think I don't, want, I don't want to be the guy that kind of um, I don't want to be the guy that overlooks the save because I think that's a, a brilliant bit of goalkeeping from Alisson but um, yeah he should score
1: yeah I, uh, I mean if he hits a hard right, he well, save it if he puts it at a different yeah, angle it yeah. doesn't save he it he telegraphs
2: it as well you can see by his body shape where he's going to put it and if you watch the replay you can see that Alisson has already moved to that side before he's made contact um, and he could do more to disguise the shot but still like good save um, great save still a fine save um, also can we talk about Andy Robertson getting sent off I feel like I've waited for this for a really, really long time because he's Uh, got away with so
1: much. Absolutely. And we should talk about this after a short break. And we're back. Now, uh, I believe you were desperate to talk about Andrew Robertson, my hero, my captain, my uh, my, my everything. He...
2: Uh, yeah, he... Um, uh, Andy Robertson's... <laughs> <the> <laughs> um, and... Wow! He's, no, oh. he's an excellent, excellent player. But over the course of his career, if you look back, he has got away with a lot. I mean, he's... Um, he has had that red card in the post for quite a long time and it's part of what makes him a good player he's aggravating and he is aggressive and he is someone that gets under an opponent's skin also under an opposing crowd skin um like and that's that's part of it players like this are very very important to the game you've got to have a player that your own fans love and everybody else hates um but he uh that's a red card um and should have had red card in this game a couple of years ago for his tackle on Jaffa Tanganga. Um, there's a moment in a game against Everton where he, uh, I forget who it was elbows someone on the floor uh, he he does this and um, that's alongside all the wonderful things he does and good, glad to see him get sent off not to say of course that Harry Kane shouldn't have been uh, red carded too because ludicrous decision not to send him off um, and I feel like this is part of everybody's frustration with VAR. It's like you, you have two incidents within a game that are very, very clear-cut, are very easy to make. They're both red cards. They both shouldn't really need VAR to make the red cards. Um, and yet the application of VAR is different for both of them, and that seems to affect the outcome in, in both cases. It's just weird. And it's um, it's also, you know, it's really strange. Like, I, the um, PGML has this habit when something like this happens, of briefing a journalist with some kind of weird rule minutiae that they suddenly make everybody aware of a a little bit of you know a little bit of a loophole that didn't exist before so um they have told somebody that apparently the reason that kane escaped the red card was that um robertson jumped in the challenge before kane made contact and so um by their weird twisted logic that somehow made him the protagonist or like something that doesn't make sense it's just like guys what is the worst that could happen just by holding your hands up and going got this one wrong there's more credibility in doing that than than, than coming up with this this weird this weird convoluted Watergate scandal type cover up where you're 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 saying oh, no it's not actually a mistake and they do it every single time. I every think single
1: as well, time. that's a. Had Robertson not jumped out the way that tackle you've seen it coming, he would have been snapped into little bits and they wouldn't have been able to volley Royal into the stands like he did for the red cards. Exactly that. Like uh, you, you just you have to. And, and
2: I think this is a lot of a lot of fans are rightly angry about it because one there's that common sense argument and there's that bit in the rules about. You know, part of um, the conditions for issuing a red card are is this a tackle that's endangering an opponent? And clearly, Keynes was because uh, Robinson could have been seriously hurt. And that's also the reason why he was sent off late because the tackle itself is fine. It's the force of the tackle that makes it a red card. Um, it's completely unnecessary. It's
1: quite funny. And there,
2: you're gone then. Go on then. Go <laughs> jump in and defend your little hero. Go
3: on. It's quite funny. <laughs> do, do you know what it reminded me of? It's the. There was a thing earlier in the season. I can't remember which side it was. It was maybe someone like Swindon and a guy went to take a free kick and the opponent was kind of dallying. And so instead of taking the free kick, the guy just cleaned just him out. cleared him out. <laughs> yeah. it, was very, it was Robertson-esque. And I, yeah.
1: Well,
2: uh, we used to, um, we had a, a coach at school who, who said um, said to us, you know, when you're trying to take a free kick and an opponent just stands in front of you, just to, to stop it. His advice was, okay, when that happens, just clean him out, just as hard as you possibly can. He, because he didn't, I don't think he knew the rules actually, and he kind of treated it as like, when when an opponent does that, it becomes like a whole pass to like violently assault somebody, which obviously it's not. And so this situation occurred. Yeah, and uh, and the, you can guess the rest of the story, but um, it didn't end well for the player on our side, that,
1: did that. You glorifying violence today. So angry today. Just. Yeah. The I was up seven. very, very
2: late during the live stream. I've had not very much sleep. Um, one of the cats decided to walk on my head at about 4 o'clock this morning, which woke you up, as it will do when something with claws walks across your face. Um,
1: Alex, the tactical battle in this game was an interesting one. Uh, what do you make of what Conte's done with Spurs?
3: I think it's very impressive. Uh, I think I think for me the, the, the tactical side of Conte is... Um, and I don't say this disparagingly, it is relatively straightforward in the sense that we know what Conte teams are going to try to do um, so there are some little jazzy bits like Ben Davis underlapping runs um, almost got a goal, well I mean it was a decent shooting opportunity off that, you know that midfield are going to alternate one or drop back into the kind of four or six position depending on which numbering system you use and they're their shape and their pattern is really starting to to take shape and be very very clear to an observer, which is what you'd expect from a Conte side. I think what's particularly impressive is the way that some of these players are being their their performances are so quickly being elevated from what they had been before. So Winks dropping off and playing that role, you know, Skips had a good couple of games. Um, as said mentioned earlier, Delielli in a different kind of thing to what we had seen before where he was much more of a kind of bitey shuttly type of runner under Mourinho now there's a little bit more craft to it so I think you know Conte is obviously it's a work in progress and he he's going to want better players but the fact that players can come into this lineup and and immediately look better than they've looked over the last sort of 18 months without
1: is this not what Spurs do now they get a new manager and they're quite good for about a month and then they all just yeah but this is Conte Conte
3: is not know so i uh, there is a quality that he is going to be able to sustain and improve
2: i would say the difference is that you can see a plan i think under Mourinho, uh, the plan was very very basic it worked um very very briefly um and dramatically at times but you could always see um the rocky foundations like if you looked beneath the kind of the score line um with nuno spirito santo i don't think it was that subtle like they got away with a couple of 1-0 wins and then they were dreadful ever after. Here, you can kind of see, you see the flaws clearly and you can see the areas of the team which desperately need investment. Um, and I think they were pretty fortunate on Sunday to get away with a draw. Um, and, um, you know, because if, if Robertson doesn't make that tackle, then I think Liverpool will probably go on and win the game. And also the Alisson mistake is pretty fortuitous. But um, you can see the basis for
3: something and that's the big difference between what came before. If you watch Spurs yeah. now... You can see how the five block is formed. You can see yeah. the alternating runs from midfield. You can see the formation of the rhombus at the back, and then the wing backs pushing up and, and players staggering between the lines. Like it's
2: yeah. Also the kind of the um, the long ball out of defence facility. Like they've got that kind of. So it's, like, it's a set move. They work it back most often to Dyer, and then they spring one of most likely K um, Son or one of the um, one of the wing backs over the top. Um, and it probably requires like Eric Dara is not Toby Alderweireld in terms of his long range distribution, but he did a pretty decent job of it on Sunday. Um, and that's one of those things that they've been missing. Like with with Mourinho, um, by design, Mourinho wanted players wants players to improvise and attack. He wants players to kind of um, become situationally wise. Whereas Conte uh, wants a bit more control. Conte is a bit more puppet like, a puppet master like with his players. Um, and you saw that, and I think like when when a team is fragile, I think it's a great benefit to have those because it can kind of fall back into those little routines without having to kind of rely on confidence. They know what to do, um, and that makes me feel a bit more secure as a supporter. Um, it's like when a family so, yeah.
1: sends their difficult child to military school. Exactly, and that. they don't want to go. Yeah, you, they don't want to go, but they come back and they're ready to. Yeah, but like
2: it's it, it, it versus sending like their difficult child to like some kind of creative arts theater, drama place where...
1: I have hey, just a master's do, in film.
2: <laughs> you, it, 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 could, it could work for some people, but it's a bit more of a risk. Like you you send your kid to military school, you have a fairly good idea of what's coming back. You send your kid off to drama school and something... F- it's like stress disorder,
3: presumably.
2: Possibly, but you're, you're still certain in the outcome. Um, and like you know, the the kid that comes back from theatre school, maybe he's super talented, but um, you're not quite sure of the direction. And, and that felt like, um, I mean, I suppose that's a little bit of a um, kind of a general criticism of 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 Mourinho's football. Like it, it works for some players, doesn't with others.
1: Well, so, do you know who else has post-traumatic stress disorder? Andrew Robertson after that horror challenge from brave, brave Sir Harry Kane. Disgraceful. Hey, was Liverpool's Highline... I think they should have kept up for this entire game because to me it looked like Conte knew they could get the ball over the top. They could run past Good. them through them. Pretty weird, but like it, it helps them squeeze the game right. So they can push up and they they can keep the ball in the other half. But they kept, and I can't work out where they kept losing the ball. Like where they were losing it to be counterattacked so quickly.
3: The gap in front of the, I felt like, I felt like the midfield's pressing up was disjointed. And so yeah. it was possible for Spurs to, if the, if Spurs got the ball in the sort of 10 yards in front of the penalty area, the midfield weren't close enough to them to prevent that initial release pass. But they were close enough that there was a gap between them and the two centre-backs. And if you could chip the ball over into that gap, then that was particularly for some to be able to run through. I think that the one... Son had that really good chance that ended up as a one-on-one, but he then overkicked it, and Allison gathered. Mm -hmm. That came from exactly that kind of situation, and it's partly because the Liverpool's centre central midfielder was that very young person whose name I can't remember. Um, Morton. Yeah, and he just—I thought he played quite well. Like he he played quite well, but he's not as bitey. He's not as he he didn't. He's not Jordan Henderson as well. Where to be, whether it was to push up or to fall back. and that's you know if that's Fabinho there, you don't have to have so much of a worry.
2: when when Liverpool would turn the ball over in a in a Spurs channel, there'd usually be an out ball down the line, usually son or Kane. Then from there the ball would be shuffled in field to to a Winks or an undembele an and then Spurs would have a like a numerical mismatch over the other side. So there's a little bit of a it felt like there was a little bit of a spacing problem. Um, in the Liverpool midfield, and also I don't think they dealt particularly well um, with the wing backs. Like Royale is not a particularly aggressive wing back. I mean, he's being asked to play that role, but he's—I think—he's—he's he's a more of a defensive player actually. Cessignon, um, kind of the same. Like he's a bit more balanced, but um, and yet, sort of, you had this problem whereby it wasn't necessarily that Liverpool's um, fullbacks were being caught up the pitch. It was just that um, the timing of Spurs' movement forward was just. Um, and I suppose that's where you miss a Henderson. Like I, I think Henderson's greatest attribute has always been to kind of like fill the gaps that develop from you know um, when Liverpool are attacking with the ball, or or to kind of to identify the the spots of weakness within his own side. You take that out, and you take out Fabinho as well, and all of a sudden, um, when the ball's with players like Son and Kane and ondembele who know how to use it, Winks is the same. Like you're a little bit vulnerable, and it felt like um, a pretty good example of just how important the midfield balance can actually be and how important like the Henderson-like qualities are to a team like Liverpool.
1: Well, that's the, the thing, Liverpool,
2: right? Liverpool, did I say? <laughs> how important they are to the Liverpool. The Liverpool. Yeah.
1: Well, the Jurgen Klopp, uh, I think the commentators were saying this is the kind of game that he really likes, the kind of high-action, high-octane thrills uh, of this end-to-end game. And the thing with the, the high line is that it to play the way he wants to play and press the way he wants to press, you have to play that line. I don't... Don't know. It's, we're talking about like uh, Bielsa at Leeds, we will come to in a second. Like, they don't want you don't want to change the way you play because it's going to inhibit the way you play just to match the opposition. And uh, <laughs> without trying, to, I'm not trying to wind you up, but it's only Spurs. So like, what do you think? Like the, the problem they've got. I mean, this should be a team that Liverpool should be able to beat, even with a weaker team. But equally, the tactically, look at Son as your main threat up front, and Kane's been a lot further forward now as well. Like he's finally got shots on goal from inside the box which is good I don't know whether should Klopp be uh, adapting his tactics in these sorts of games I
2: wouldn't say adapting like I would always say that like Liverpool against a team like Spurs you know Liverpool shouldn't be shouldn't be adapting around that side they should be trying to enforce themselves on that kind of team and just sort of pinpoint like focusing themselves on their weaknesses but like I would have thought that at least part of the conversation ahead of the game, and I do accept that like Liverpool have all kinds of shortages and the match preparation was badly disrupted, of course it was, but um, the one thing that you want to take away from Spurs, a team that cannot really at the moment create many chances off the front foot, they're not a team that's particularly comfortable in, um, in control of the ball because they don't have a midfield combination that they are um, settled on. Um, Their first choices were all unavailable. So surely the thing that you take away it's, Kay- it's um, Kane and Son's ability to kind of create the combinations which can spring one of them behind a defence. Also, that Eric Dyer thing that we talked about earlier. Um, well, Eric Dyer is not playing those passes with any great disguise. And yet, three or four times, like it was just as simple as knocking the ball over the top of the defence. And one of the things, um, amongst his many complaints about the refereeing, which were all valid um, after the game, was... Um, club was quite sort of disparaging and said oh yeah all Tottenham did was just kick it as far as possible and then run after it I was like okay we'll stop it then
1: it kind of (laughs) worked because
2: it kind of worked and it's just like I I felt like I don't feel like uh, Liverpool should have adapted round Spurs but I felt like maybe um, they could have won that game with a little bit of humility at some point because all they had to do was control the ball and um, you know the way of possession Spurs' defence is so fragile um, and the, the issues in front of that defense and in the field are so obvious that you have 55-60% of the ball in the right area of the pitch you are going to score goals because look at who's playing up front for you um, and yet it was as if rather than you know they did the opposite of that thing like a kind of right well we want Spurs to come on to us because I don't know uh, very very
3: weird so um, I don't know there was a moment where Kanate really stepped up and, and won a very very aggressive header um, I can't remember who the ball was was going to, but it was really noticeable that that was the only time that stuck out in my mind of one of Liverpool's defenders really aggressively closing the space up and, yeah. and trying to get ahead and win the ball before it got to that kind of slightly dangerous area where Spurs could then build play from on the counter. And I, I I just was a bit surprised that Liverpool didn't maybe defend that space a bit more aggressively also.
2: It was it was really odd. Also, like um, Son has had coronavirus recently, and I think you could see that he wasn't really quite fit yesterday. He had to play, and you know, played okay. But it was just a um, I don't know. It was it was. It's very hard to, to explain. It was if um, I feel like Spurs got away with it. I feel like Spurs were given opportunities in the game that, um, and I I kept expecting these 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 doors to be shut. So I think we all saw the first half an hour and the kind of the the volume of chances that Spurs created and and missed. And he thought, well, at some point, there's going to be a rejig and um, the adjustment's going to be made to prevent any of these avenues. It's going to be back to the same old plodding Tottenham who have the ball, lose it, and concede goals. Uh, And that never happened. And I found that, you know, um, injury issues aside, quite odd, quite hard to explain.
1: Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub,
0: Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.
1: Well, speaking of injury issues, uh, I don't really care about the League Cup, but we've got uh, written down here that there are some games coming up. But will they be coming up? Because they might have a little break with all scheduling. And you know what? That's also quite boring as well, isn't it? All the scheduling and things like that. So let's ignore it and pretend the coronavirus doesn't exist. And instead, move on to a team... Uh, Leeds 1-4, Arsenal... My God, they're in trouble. Leeds. There I mean. yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. we Hey, so... Uh let's plug the the excellent Phil Hayes. you wrote a great article about this yes. um, he's so nice in real life as well he's a really really nice bloke yeah um, and uh, very difficult obviously to watch what's happening to Leeds at the moment and I thought he made a really good point in his article which is that um, when you when you marry uh, Leeds' injury issues which are really substantial so like for instance Robin Cock had to play against Arsenal having not played since August because of the um Laurente was ruled out in the morning of the game I think so they have crushing issues everywhere they've been without Calvin Phillips for a while now He's, he is their the kind of the personality of their midfield um, but he said that um, when you marry these injury issues up with um, Marcelo Bielsa's refusal to be anything other than Marcelo Bielsa and to make no deference to to a situation um, in, in this instance um, you know being reluctant to move away from kind of his man marking um, you're going to have problems and it's entirely logical because if you think about Leeds' success at least in promotion in their first Premier League season they have the kind of physical superiority over most opponents um, and with the effects of coronavirus and the squad shortages and their desperate need for reinforcements in January that physical superiority has vanished and the effect and result is kind of what happened against Arsenal which is just that they look entirely broken um, they weren't they didn't play in a way which made any kind of um acknowledgement of their situation which was really scary like it's so it's so fundamentalist and i love marcelo bielsa he's he's a fascinating guy but this is a kind of this is the this is the bielsa flaw, um and um it's gonna sound sad like we we will talk about arsenal being good because i thought they were um but it was also really easy for them to build a 3-0 lead
1: well on bielsa's Um, tactics let's go into what man-oriented marking is and why that's been an issue for them Uh, i think you're best for this alex (laughs)
3: <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, essentially, the, the, mostly teams will particularly higher up the pitch will mark zonally. So players will have a rough position and they orientate themselves kind of slightly in relation to where people are, but also where the ball is. But they're looking to shut down passing lanes, whether they're pressing or blocking. Bielsa has this thing where it's, you're basically picking up whoever's closest to you and then sticking with them and you have to hand that player over once they pass a certain distance away so that it doesn't get so pulled out of shape. But because they have a spare man at the back, they tend to kind of compensate for that. What it means, this is a terrible explanation, but what it means <laughs> I like is it. that it's basically, if you have a lot of rotations in your opposition build-up, it's very, very easy to pull leads... I don't want to say out of shape because they actually kind of don't have a shape to start with. Their shape is mirroring the opposition shape, but you can then create massive holes on the pitch that you can pull. uh, You can uh, attack through with your own players. Yeah. When it works, it works because they have the spare man who is able to cover the space. And that's often what Ben White did for them last season. Um, Cock is also good at that. Cooper is also quite good at that. Um, but also, it's, season, it's season
2: before last for Ben White. Uh,
3: sorry, yes. Um, but it's also because they have the physicality of Phillips, who can kind of buzz mm. around and shut down passing angles and put the opposition under pressure. And if they're if the opposition are worried about the press and the degree of physicality that Leeds are using to impose on themselves, they have less time to think about orchestrating those patterns and rotations that pull Leeds out of shape in their marking system so it's a kind of vicious circle for leads because they can't do the pattern that they know works for them if the way that they also defend otherwise isn't functioning properly and i
1: get yeah but they're missing players like they are. Their squad's not already, it's not very good, I would have said. It's, it's,
3: it's not a massive and this is, again, the problem with Bielsa and, I, and I, like I get what Phil's saying in terms of moving away from the man marking system and that, that's the logical response. But Bielsa takes such a long time to drill his players into the way that he wants them to play, which is basically unlike almost any other team. I mean, Atalanta kind of do it a little bit um, but it's, it's no, you can't have degrees of uniqueness. That's stupid. But it's relatively unique, um, <laughs> and and so to to assume that you can just abandon it and go back. You know, these are players who have been coached consistently for two and a half years to play in a very rigid and particular way. You can't just go, oh, well, we're not going to do that today. But Alex, like, when, when you, it feels like
2: when you, when you have any system which relies on um, markers passing over to each other. And you add in the uncertainty of team selection, which is in this case as severe as players dropping out four hours before kickoff. Like this is the natural result. Like seven goals against Man City, four against Arsenal.
3: This this, this is the problem with highly ornate uh, tactical yeah. systems that are. So so the obvious analog here is uh, Sheffield United in the season they got relegated, not because the defensive okay. system was the same, but because. The way that Sheffield United played was an absolutely brilliant uh, compensation by Chris Wilder and Alan Mill for the the deficiencies in their squad and the way that also teams tended to defend against them in League One. But as soon as you have injury issues to key players, in this instance, the wide centre backs for Sheffield United, the system just doesn't work because you can't adapt a system that is so rigidly coached because it's the way that you do stuff, but is also incredibly reliant on certain players or a certain level of cohesion. And so these two teams are having the same kind of systemic problem, albeit their tactical systems are totally different.
1: Yes, sounds nice. (laughs) (laughs) Arsenal then. Uh, Hey, hey, I'll tell you something. That Martinelli is all right. My uh, my my podcast questions are weird today. I have to sing a thing and then stopping talking. I'm not even asking you anything.
3: The Arteta, like the three youngest average Premier League sides named this season, have all been named by Arteta. It's I think it. that's right. Well,
1: he's yeah. doing like, he's doing like yeah, a yeah, football yeah. manager thing. Where he's buying all young kids to bring he's them through. Kids, but he's having to play he's them giving now. Giving
3: them an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. And it's I mean, obviously, some of those young kids that are there already and have been for a while, like Smith Rowe and Saka. But the way that Tavares, for example, has been brought into that as a uh, you know purchase. That's worked really, really well. Ramsdale's worked really, really well. And he's, Ramsdale is young for a, for a top-level goalkeeper. Um, it just seems like awesome. Arsenal. Tavares, Tavares is a weird one. I don't see
2: the Tavares thing. Like, I agree with everything else. Tavares just seems like a, I don't know, a problem in the making. Maybe there's I there's
1: something there, but he just needs to learn a little bit. Yeah. Uh,
2: I mean...
3: Lukonga will make the occasion. the like. and Compliant. yeah, but he has a range of passing which is really good. He's working well in, in that role. He's, you know, he, he he makes mistakes. I think we talked maybe two weeks ago in, in in a podcast about how he wasn't dropping off into the correct areas and so on. But but you know, Arteta is persisting with these young players and giving them opportunities, and by and large for now it's working but it's arsenal so in two weeks
1: it's nine. definitely working against teams who are decimated by injury <laughs> There's the thing with arsenal i still can't figure it out like i can't figure it out because i see that some of the problems that i was talking about before like the donut and all that sort of stuff where there's no central striker they still do that sometimes they're still very slow and build up from the back but they are like the numbers are showing that they're actually doing quite well XG and underlying stuff shows they're a little bit inconsistent, so they're not quite there, but that's what happens with young players and a team being formed. They could be on the way to doing something quite good. And like, think about this, right? James,
3: James York put out a graphic using stats bomb numbers today on Twitter, and, and it, was, it was basically to do with like XG differentials in games. And mm. you see that some teams are relatively tight to the med- to their own medium. Um, there's not a great deal of variation in results. But Arsenal are spectacularly all over the shop sometimes they're doing fantastically and other times they're, they're 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 just less consistent i think than most other teams and that that is a facet of the way he's getting them to play i think
2: it feels like they still don't I arsenal still don't know what they want to be i don't think there's like a the arsenal performances are pegged around um at the moment. Uh, performances of individual players too. Like every Arsenal win at the moment is kind of sponsored by somebody. Like Leeds, Martinelli, who I thought was great. Um, Smith Rowe has been very, very important. Saka's been important. Um, Lacazette has had a couple of good games recently. Um, but it feels like uh, there isn't a a kind of There isn't an end game in mind at the moment. It's just a kind of an open evolution, if that makes sense, Um, which makes it very, very interesting. But it feels also like there are still important steps to take. Like I I think recruitment is still half finished. I think that um, I I still think some of the players in this team are not good enough to go where Arsenal want to go uh, long term. Um, I think Jacko is still a problem defensively. Um, The Aubameyang situation um, is, at the moment, it's a relief because it feels like it's been resolved, but it's a long way from that because it's a very, very high earner, a very influential person who has been kind of ostracized from the group. It's a weird situation. It feels like like a decision that Arteta has wanted to make and needed the reason to make it, if that makes sense, not to be too conspiratorial. But then that's kind of a little negative that has to be resolved. You you feel like that's Arsenal. And one of the reasons that they are... um, it seems one of the reasons why they are a little bit inconsistent is absolutely fundamentally because they're young, and that's that, the habit of young players. But also because there is still so much uncertainty in so many different areas, um, and like it's not probably a coincidence that they tend to be as good as the teams they face are bad. Like with all due respect, they they beat a, a very average Southampton at home, um, a devastated Leeds um, away. West Ham was good. That was good. West Ham, Uh, yeah, that's fair. The West Ham win was good. Um, But then there was a worrying moment in the Leeds game where they had the game won. Rafinha scored his penalty. Great penalty, by the way. Lovely penalty. But then all of a sudden, Leeds were the better team for a little bit, which is kind of weird. I know that's a game state thing, but it was still, you know, you're in such control of this game and all of a sudden another goal and what happens and it didn't come. But that's that's
1: the the AI. That's the AI doing that to uh, make sure that the game catch up. Yeah
2: yeah yeah that's sky sports yeah yeah i know a yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's scripting damn it
1: that's what that is <laughs> and that's real by the way scripting's real that, that exists in games i've i've been told reliably that's a real thing they put into these football games you,
2: you've told me consistently that and i'll tell that, you so.
1: again and again and again yeah, because yeah, i've been yeah, seeing yeah. them for years we used to call it pro evil luck but Alex you're looking as though you don't know what i'm talking about
3: I've got no idea what you're talking about. Bruce. You know when so you play. Believe- <laughs> I, I I I need to break for two minutes.
1: Well, that's fine because I think we're actually at the end of the podcast. Oh, what a relief! We're sure. I think we've covered yeah. everything we needed to. I think we've all had a lovely time, especially Seb, who's a lot happier now than he was. Hey, I know I,
2: I I was grumpy this morning, and I am sorry for that. But I am happier now. You two have cheered me up. I saw Alex laugh. Alex, Alex, when you laugh, you you don't you laugh with your mouth, but not your eyes. It's quite a funny thing. It's when like he a, lights up the camera. Ha, ha, ha.
1: It glows. Like reindeer's, Monday. a reindeer's nose, and he's the reindeer are coming. They're coming to get you on uh, the weekend, aren't they? So uh, everyone, I hope you enjoy your uh, Christmases. Happy Christmas! Yes, <laughs> the reindeers are coming to get you. They're coming to get you. They won't stop for anyone. There's nothing you can do. Board up your doors, lock your windows. The reindeers will come. They're quite big reindeer. Uh, anyway, this probably won't happen. But thank you for listening to the podcast. <laughs> Uh, what are what we doing oh yes we're ending it that's it thank you Alex Stewart uh, thank you JJ uh, you're welcome thank you Seb uh,
2: thank you JJ Bull the Bullard uh, okay. a little bit of Jay Devine a little uh, bit of Divine. Devine
1: uh, this, is, this is what Joe does alright thanks for listening everyone um, have a lovely Christmas and yeah thank you for listening again I'll say it again and again and again goodbye
3: athletic